passage that was just shown on the screen in part. I'd like to read for us the whole passage we're going to look at today from chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1 through verse 23. Uh, So if you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, I'd like to read that for us. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. In that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth that many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and this deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it, and he produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's pray. Father, we come today to a very familiar parable, one that we have heard many times before. And Father, I pray that that would not get in the way of our understanding it but that you would instead use it to reinforce what you want us to know. Thank you that you are a God who wants to bear fruit through us. In fact, Jesus said, much fruit. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be that kind of good soil that is open and receptive to your word and bears much fruit for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Do you ever wonder why some people respond to the gospel while others want nothing to do with it? They can be at the same service, they could hear the same message, the same gospel presentation, and yet have very different responses. Do you ever wonder why more people don't want to follow Christ? I mean, when you truly consider all that He has done for us and the promises of Scripture, does it ever puzzle you sometimes why people don't want that? To experience His joy and His love, His forgiveness, His compassion, and the gift of eternal life? You know, I know all of us at times probably wrestle with that. Very early on in my Christian experience, you know, when I was in college and I was growing in my relationship with Christ, God did a wonderful work of grace. And I, my life just changed. And I began to experience those qualities, the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I just had such a peace, such a sense of direction that had been lacking before. God was doing this wonderful work in my life. And I wanted to share that joy with my friends. And I remember going back uh, and talking with some of my high school friends and sharing the Gospel with them. And the response that I received was strikingly like this parable of the sower. I had four close friends in high school, and when I shared with them the good news, their response was very much like this passage. Two of them really rejected it right there. One would die a few years later. Um, he had chosen an alternative lifestyle, and he would die from AIDS in just a few years. I think of another friend who wanted nothing to do with it because he was more interested in really parties and alcohol and living for the weekend having a good time. That's, that's his plan, and he didn't want to change his plan by any kind of a commitment to Christ, and so he rejected it. I had a third friend who made a profession of faith, but never seemed to really grow spiritually. He was a nice guy. He was a, a moral guy, but it's just like he had all these other things that were going on in his life, and yes, he would go to church, and yes, he would do other things, and it was kind of always hard to discern where he was really at. There wasn't a deep passion or love for God. And then a fourth friend and his wife accepted Christ, grew in their faith. You could see the difference in their life and their involvement in church and in their children, their family. In fact, one of their kids went on into ministry as well. And you could see the difference that Jesus made in their life. And we'd have these great times of fellowship together, uh, praying for them and studying the Scripture together. God did a work of grace. But why the difference? I mean, it was the same message that was shared with all of them. It was the same gospel, but there were really four different responses to that message. Why does that happen? Well, that's what this passage is about. It's called the parable of the sower, but it really is about the four soils. That's where the emphasis is. The emphasis isn't upon the sower in this passage. The emphasis is upon the four soils, and the four soils represent four different responses to the gospel. It's called a parable, and a parable is a story from real life or a real-life situation from which a spiritual truth is drawn. Now, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, for one reason, stories are memorable. Uh, we like to hear them. We uh, like to share stories. They kind of stick in our mind more. It's why as a pastor we use illustrations a lot to try to explain spiritual truth and help you get a handle on it. 
My wife always tells me never leave out the illustrations, you know, always always keep those in when I'm sharing. And we enjoy that. Well, there came a point in Jesus' ministry where he changed and he began to focus his teaching and he used parables mostly in his teaching, especially with the crowds that had followed him. Why did he do that? Well, he tells us this interesting thing that only those with eyes to see and ears to hear would understand the spiritual meaning behind it. And his parables became both a way of enlightening those who had come to him by faith as well as a means of judgment on those who had rejected him. Those who had come to him and wanted to know him better, their eyes were opened, they saw the truth of what he was sharing, they understood the implications of it, and they would grow in their faith. But to those crowds who had followed him, maybe out of curiosity, but had really rejected him, their eyes were dull. They were spiritually blind and they couldn't see it. Same story, same message, same teacher. And yet again were these different responses that were going on. The crowds had had ample opportunity to come to Christ. I mean, if anyone should have seen the reality of who Jesus was, they should have. They saw His miracles, they heard Him teach, they saw His life, and yet their hearts were still closed. And Jesus told this parable to explain their response. A farmer went out to sow his seed. The farmer or sower is Jesus. The soil is the Word of God. It's the Gospel. And the four soils represent the human heart. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. First of all, let's take a look at the first soil, which represents the hard heart, in verses 18 and 19. The first soil is a response of the unbeliever who hears the Word of God and does not understand it. His heart is hard. The gospel doesn't make sense to him or he doesn't think it's relevant to him and so he might laugh it off or he rejects it. He has no time for it at all. It is foolishness to him, the scripture says. Now, have you ever encountered that? You ever tried to share the gospel with someone you know and you've seen that kind of response? I remember one young man who, when uh, he had the gospel shared with him, someone using the four spiritual laws and shared that with him, Uh, He wasn't interested, and he took it, and he just tore it up page by page. Kind of like the story of Baruch's uh, example where the king heard uh, Jeremiah's message in the Old Testament and just tore it up and threw it into the fire. That was his response. He wanted nothing to do with it. This doesn't concern me, or I'm not interested in this at all. His heart was hard. And God says here in this passage that when the seed falls on a hard heart, Satan comes along and he snatches that seed away before the person thinks about it or reconsiders it or understands the implications of it. What makes a heart hard? Well, the answer in Scripture is sin. And the deeper we go in sin, the harder the heart becomes. You can read about that progression in Romans 1 where it talks about how men suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That God's glory, His eternal power is seen all around us in the natural world. 
We can see His beauty, His handiwork, His awesome majesty. We can know something about His design, His deity, all of that from the world around us. But many people respond to that and just suppress the truth. And God's Word says that even though they knew God on this one sense, should have known and understood, they refused to honor Him as God or give thanks to Him for the many gifts that He had given. And their foolish heart became darkened. And God gave them over deeper and deeper into their sin. And you can read how that progresses in God's Word. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, Paul says this to those of us who are believers. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that we must no longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. He's describing the unbelieving world around him that seems to just want to follow you know, pleasure and the pursuit of things that they want to enjoy that are very hedonistic and do that to the max. And all the while, it's like a callus is building up on their heart. And they become hardened to the things of the Spirit of God. What can a person do who's in that condition to soften their heart? There's really nothing that that individual can do. We can't save ourselves. A person with a hardened heart doesn't even desire to change. The only one who can change their heart is God. It is the Spirit of God who begins to work on that hard soil. And one of the ways that he often does that is through Christians. This young man I described who tore up the four spiritual laws and wanted nothing to do with it, later came into a situation where he was kind of surrounded by a lot of guys who were Christians. And by their witness, through their life, through their friendship, actions in their life, that soil began to soften. And the day came when that young man also made a commitment to Jesus Christ. We can't save ourselves, but God in His grace will use people in a person's life to help soften that soil and give them that opportunity. The shallow heart, that's found in verses 20 and 21. It's described as rocky soil. And rocky soil isn't soil with, say, a lot of rocks in it or in the way. It is shallow soil that's over a hard layer of rock. It might look okay on the surface. There might be a couple inches of soil on top, but it's really not very good for growing anything. And especially in that hot climate when the sun would come up and if there wasn't a lot of moisture, that plant would suffer from the heat of the day. And even though it looked like there was life there, there was no root. And as soon as that sun came up, it would dry and wither and die. This soil is like a person who hears the gospel, responds to it, and maybe three months later they're gone. And you're going, you know, where... Where's so-and-so? Where is this guy? You know, have you seen him? Or, or where is she? Didn't, didn't she make a commitment to Christ? Or wasn't there kind of a response? Or seemed like there's an interest? And then they're gone. They may have come forward at 
in the past something like a Billy Graham crusade or another kind of outreach like that. They may have been at a youth meeting. They may have gone to camp or a retreat. They made a commitment to Christ. And then six weeks later, they're back in their old lifestyle and they're gone. Were they ever really saved? And that's a question that we wrestle with. And that's a question that you know, may seem hard to answer because we never really know the heart. But the answer from Scripture is no. The only sure evidence of a genuine faith is spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit. And the total absence of fruit means that they were never truly saved. If there's to be genuine life, then there will be some evidence of it in that person's heart. And there are a lot of people who have kind of a false assurance that think that they have prayed a prayer or they made a commitment in the past, but they have no desire to follow Christ, no desire to walk with Him, and they are running the opposite direction. Should they feel assurance of salvation? Not at all. Not at all. Because that's not where God wants us to be. He wants us to be growing in our relationship with Him. In the early church, and still today in many parts of our world, it was persecution that caused many to fall away. That's what Jesus is talking about here, how this soil, when the seed is sown, it's like there can be life that springs up, but when persecution comes, they fall away from the faith and they want nothing to do with Christ. It can also be in our world today trials or disappointments that can cause some to fall away. They maybe had an expectation that if they made this commitment, then life was going to be smooth or easy or God was going to do this or that. And if there's disappointment with God or misunderstandings with other Christians or trials in their life, they may fall away because of it. Was there real life there? No, I don't think so based on what the Scripture says. But even more common in our country and in our situation today seems to be the third soil. It's the thorny soil in verse 22. The thorny soil represents the person who hears the Word of God but is distracted by other things. And those other things choke out the Word of God. The seed falls among the thorns. A man hears the Word But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it and making it unfruitful. You know, on uh, the farm where I grew up, we had some patches of soil that were always so very difficult because of that. And even though you might try weed killer and try to take out everything there short of kind of a nuclear bomb taking out that area, sometimes it seemed like certain areas just had very poor soil. And the weeds would come up and it would choke everything out. And you'd end up at harvest time just kind of working around that area and leaving it because it was unfruitful. The thorny soil represents this person again who hears the Word of God but is distracted by other things. They may look like a Christian in some ways. They may have even prayed the sinner's prayer. They may have even gone to church once in a while. But the focus of their life is on other things. And it is all wrong from God's point of view. 
the Word doesn't bear fruit in their life because they are more concerned about worldly things. It might be their work. It might be pleasure. It might be making money. It might be uh, something else of sports or leisure or something else that's become the priority of their life and what they pursue. And the problem here isn't that work or sports or leisure or things like that are wrong. I mean, God can use each of those things. They can be good things that can be done to the glory of God. The question is really about our heart. The issue is, who comes first in our life? And why are we doing those things? If the answer is anything other than God, it is idolatry. If anything else comes first in our life before our relationship with God, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. But when God comes first, then whatever we do can be done for the glory of the Lord. Our work can be honoring to Him. Our, our free time is honoring to Him. The things that we enjoy in life as hobbies or interests or pursuits can be done in a way that honors Him. The answer again relates to our heart. You know, I used to think that the rocky soil and the thorny soil were believers who just never grew. I used to think that, you know, in those passages, what it was saying was that there was life there that sprang up, but they just fell away or it was choked out. But there really was life there. But I don't think so anymore based upon Matthew's Gospel. When I study this passage in the context of what Matthew is saying here and in the other Gospels, one of the marks of a believer, a disciple, is spiritual fruit. And if there's no spiritual fruit again, one asks the question whether there ever really was spiritual life. But here's one of the other points that I want to make. The same thing that can keep people from coming to Christ can also keep us from growing in Christ. We can be tempted by these very same things and distracted by them as well. What are the things that can keep us from growing in Christ? Well, it is the worries of this world or the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things. Those are the things that can hinder us as we pursue Christ and want to follow Him. And we can find ourselves at times in our life being distracted or taken up by those kind of worries and cares. And God tells us to seek him first, to seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all those other things that we need, God will provide, God will take care of us, He'll give us the wisdom that we need. We can make it. We need to guard our heart too so that we don't buy into the lies of this world that more is better, or if I just had a little bit more money, I'd be happier, or if I just you know, had more leisure time or could do these things or that, things in life would be better. We too can focus so much on the temporal that we forget what is eternal and our priorities can get out of whack. I read a story about a situation that came up in San Antonio that kind of illustrates that. It was a hot September day. The temperature was about 99 degrees and a mom and her sister had been driving in the car and the 10-month-old baby was in the back seat. And when they got out of the car, the aunt accidentally locked the car before taking the keys out. 
And here was this 10-month-old baby girl that was now trapped inside this car. And the mom and the aunt were frantic. They were running around outside of the car, you know, kind of calling for help, wondering how to get in. And, uh, you know, one person heard their pleas and came and he brought a coat hanger and he was trying to jiggle the lock to see if there was some way he could get it open. And meanwhile, it's getting more and more serious as this baby is starting to turn purple. And a man came by who was in a tow truck. They had called and they had gotten some help. And this guy came with the tow truck. And he, when he got there and he saw what was going on, he just took a hammer and he smashed the window in order to let air in and to unlock the door and to get the baby out. Was he a hero? You know, the interesting thing he said in that story is that the woman was mad at me for breaking the window. And he goes, you know, what's more important, a baby or a window? Sometimes our priorities get out of order and it takes someone else to come along and see the real danger and shock us a little bit and bring us to our senses. What comes first in our life? God does. And when we put Him first, He gives us a perspective on everything else in our life. And he begins to put those other areas, our work, our leisure, our friendship, our time, our money, all of those things into line with the priorities of his word. That's the good soil. The fourth soil represents the receptive heart. The good soil represents a person who hears God's word and understands it. They delight in God's word and they put it into practice in their life. The good soil produces fruit according to its capability. Some a hundred times, some sixty times, some thirty times what was sown. But it is all called good soil. I mean, there are differences among Christians in terms of opportunities that they have or gifts that they've been given. God just wants us to be faithful with the time, the talents, the gifts that we have. We are not all the same, but all are necessary in the body of Christ. And we have different roles to play. And we've talked about that. How many people it takes to make a Sunday morning work from the people who serve in the nursery or with our preschoolers so that you can sit here and listen to the message to the people who take care of the facility so that it is clean and ready for Sunday morning to the people who prepare the bulletin or the notes or who lead us in worship. I mean, there are numerous different roles that it takes to make a Sunday morning happen. God uses them all. And they all are part of bearing fruit and they all are called good. The important thing is that we all be that kind of good soil, that we keep our heart open to God, that we are humble and we are teachable. And then in this passage, Jesus says something that I think is really, really remarkable. He tells us in verses 16 and 17 that if you get this, You know, if you really get it, do you understand how blessed you are? Look at verses 16 and 17 again. He said, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth that many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now Jesus is saying that to the disciples who were there, And he's saying, do you understand the great privilege that you have? That there were men of old who were prophets 
who looked forward to this day when the Messiah would come. And they longed for it. And they prayed for it. And they worked for it. And they did all that they could do as God had given them their assignment to prepare that day. But you men who are sitting here with Jesus, you know, you're seeing it firsthand. But I think that that truth also applies to those of us who live as New Testament saints. If you get it, I mean, if you understand the Gospel and you look back and you know and you remember that time when God opened your eyes and you heard the truth of the Gospel and your life was changed by His grace, I mean, wasn't that an exciting time in your life? I look back and I felt like I was just, like my feet weren't even touching the ground when I was walking across campus. I mean, I understood and I could sense the change that He was making in my life. What a joy. What a blessing. And then to see spiritual fruit, to see God use you to make an impact on someone else or to join with others and making a difference, whether it was on a campus or a community or a church. How exciting is that? When I think about what God is doing today, we live in one of the most exciting periods in human history. I mean, there are these huge strides being made in terms of bringing the Gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. There are more and more people who are coming to know Christ all around the world. And I sometimes just marvel at how we get to be a part of it. Here we are in this smaller community in this area just outside of the Twin Cities, and yet we are having an impact upon people in other parts of the world that have never heard the Gospel before and are coming to know Him. And what a joy that that is. Do you know what that's like? I mean, I think this is a very good picture of what it's like to be a Christian today. During World War II, if you had been living in France, for example, when the Nazis began to invade and overrun Europe, it would have felt like you were in a hopeless situation. I mean, uh, you saw the Nazi Germany and the armies advancing. They were taking Eastern Europe. They're taking Western Europe. They're making these huge strides. And nobody was able to stand up to their blitzkrieg of their uh, Luftwaffe and of their uh, German tanks that were making their advances across Europe. I mean, it was like they were just demolishing everybody that was in their way. And they came to that point where they really possessed all of it. And what happened at that time was that a resistance movement began to spring up in countries like France and Norway, the Netherlands, and other parts of Europe. And these diverse groups of people began to work together in opposition to what was going on. These civilians did their best to work against the occupying forces. They published newspapers to encourage those that were fighting against it. They helped Jews to escape the horrors of the Holocaust. They rescued downed Allied pilots. They provided valuable information as they were able to get it out on radios and signal back to Britain and to the Allies. Why did they do it? I mean, to many, their work would have seemed like it was absolutely futile. What could this small group of people do against such a powerful army? 
I mean, they didn't have tanks to go up against them. They didn't have anything that could deal with the air power. They had to operate in secret. They had to often meet in ways where they had to, uh, you know, kind of use codes or get words out. And they would meet those that they thought they could trust in secret places doing all of this. But there had to be some who thought, you know, is this going to make any difference at all? Will we ever win? What kept them going? What kept them going? It was hope. Hope of an allied invasion that would come one day. And they heard the rumors of what was beginning to happen with Operation Overlord. And they waited for that day because they believed when that day came, it would mean liberation for their countries. And when D-Day came on June 6, 1944, they rejoiced. The war wasn't over, but it was the beginning of the end. It was the day that they had hoped for. And I think about the way that we live as Christians in this world. You know, we're part of a resistance movement. We live behind enemy lines. We are here and we, we share with believers both locally and in other countries and we're sharing stories and we're in constant communication with our Heavenly Father. And there are small groups of people that are meeting to worship God in house churches and places that we have never been to. But we're having an impact upon them through Bible translation, through those that have gone out, through people that have gone on short-term missions. And you know, almost every week here at our church, we hear reports of what God is doing in these other parts of the world that are just so encouraging. And I am continually amazed by the people who come through our community and we have the opportunity, especially as pastors, to sit down and talk with them. You know, and they're working in closed access countries and they're sharing about what's happening even as they are helping people to escape in an underground situation. Or how they are training and equipping people to go back into these closed access countries to share the Word of God. And how there are people who are risking their lives literally for the sake of the Gospel. And they need our prayers. And we have people that are giving and sacrificing of their own time and things that they could be doing with their life in other areas that have dedicated themselves to the cause of Jesus Christ and to bringing this good news to those who have never heard. And we rejoice with them. We've heard reports of things that God is doing in Muslim areas and Central Asia and Southeast Asia, and it's just fantastic to hear the good news of what God is doing. What is it that keeps us going? It is hope as well. It's the hope that all of our labor in the Lord is not in vain and that that day is coming when He's going to return. And we long for that. And so when we work in this life and we see the presence of evil that sometimes seems kind of overwhelming or the way the world is going, We recognize that that day is coming when all of that's going to change. And Jesus, our liberator, will return. And we don't lose heart if there are times when it feels like, you know, things are tough or there are trials or difficulties we're going through. We don't lose heart if we share the gospel and the response to the gospel is only one out of four, maybe, or something like that, what we see in the parables. If that's how they responded to Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that we don't see more come to know Christ when we share the good news as well. 
And in our heart, we remain teachable, receptive to the Word of God. We stay faithful. We keep our heart open and responsive to God's leading in our life. And we join with Him in this resistance movement that is working to advance the kingdom every single day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to walk with You. And I know when when we come to know Christ and there is that excitement, there's that passion in our hearts, sometimes it is hard for us to understand why other people don't want to know You too. Who wouldn't want to taste Your grace and Your mercy and Your love? And yet we know that it's not that way. And so, Lord, we pray that You would keep us faithful, both as a church and as individuals, to share the good news. We rejoice in what You are doing around the world, and we give You thanks for that. And we pray, Father, for the advance of the kingdom, that the gospel would reach more and more people who would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we look forward to that day when You will return, our King, our Savior, our Lord. And what a great day that will be. So, Father, keep us faithful. Hold us in your grip and help us to walk with you each day, we pray. Amen.